welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning in these spaces. Give us your Holy Spirit to illumine this, the word of God, to us, that we would know more about who you are, know more about your will, your purpose for all things. And Father, know more about your Son, given for us and for the world, even Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected. Would we know the welcome of grace here and now and be molded, Father? Thank you that no matter where we come from, The offer is open to everybody. Come and be new. Because Jesus, as we have sung, has paid it all. We pray, be glorified in these spaces and moments. O Lord, for your sake, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Jackson Pollock was a famous painter of the 20th century. He was famous for a couple of reasons. Reason number one. He painted good. He was good at painting. That's why Jackson Pollock was famous. He made pretty pictures. And if you're familiar with Jackson Pollock, he wasn't a normal quote-unquote painter. He did his own thing. He used a drip, or what he liked to call an aerial style, and he would stretch really big canvases, not on an easel or on a wall, but on the ground. And he would walk around the edge of the canvas with a big old can of paint and a big paintbrush and throw the paint onto the canvas. Jackson Pollock was famous because his paintings had a ton of vibrancy to them and depth. And I actually had the thought this week, I went back and checked. I go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art a good bit, and I don't recall ever seeing a Jackson Pollock there. Went online and checked. They only have two paintings of 
Pollock, and they're both minor works. I don't think they're displayed very often. And then I did some more research. There's a lot of Pollocks in New York, and this is what I found. Between the Met, the MoMA, the Frick, the Guggenheim, and the Whitney, there are zero Rocky statues at any of those museums. So once again, we are still winning. So there's a lot of Pollocks in our sister city to the north, our sixth borough, if you want to go there. But Jackson Pollock, that action painting was the name of how he painted. He didn't personally like that description too much, but you could see the action and the life in his paintings, made him both controversial at the time, but then also, whether then or now, very famous. Reason number two as to why Jackson Pollock is so famous, and there's more than just these two, but it wasn't just Jackson Pollock. It was because of another man named Hans Namath, a German photographer and filmographer, no relation to Joe Namath as far as I know. But what Hans Namath did, 1949-1950, was first take a series of photographs of Jackson Pollock doing the painting. Tons of pictures about the painter in process, and then after that, he actually filmed Pollock doing the painting. Took Pollock outside, dug a big hole in the ground, stuck a video, a film camera, under the ground, pointing up, and instead of a canvas, there is a big glass platform over the hole, and then the camera filmed Pollock from below as he was throwing his paint onto, not the canvas in this case, but the glass. People were captivated, so that film was distributed. So his magazines like Harper's Bazaar and Life, some of our old timers, you remember what a big deal Life magazine was back in the day. People were captivated. Because take, for example, the Sistine Chapel in Rome. You can go there, but you're never going to see a photo or a film of Michelangelo on his back painting that ceiling. You can go and look at Water Lilies by Monet. Philly has some of those. But you're never going to see Monet on film actually doing any painting. Or Rembrandt with his moody self-portraits and still lives. Was he dark and moody when he actually painted those things? We'll never know. But with Pollock, we see the process. On the film, he looks like a panther with a cigarette in his mouth, prowling around the outside. We were captivated. And so it was that seeing the process of the painter enhanced the appreciation of the painting. Oh yeah, I see this painting, I see this Pollock. And I have in my mind the photos, the video of Pollock himself throwing the paint onto the canvas. And then vice versa. Wow, I see these canvases by Pollock. And then I think back on the other hand to that process. That was really awesome. Let's think about the world. Let's think about the universe. Life, the universe, and everything. Ain't it pretty? Isn't it beautiful? As we look out at the stars the seas, the mountains. Maybe you're a stargazer. Maybe you're the down shore kind of person. Maybe you love the Poconos, and they're so awesome. There's beauty all around us. Maybe you love going to museums and seeing art. Maybe you love the beauty inherent in unboxing a new Apple product with all of the design that Apple designers put into that process. Maybe you love looking at and appreciating a well-made piece of furniture, whether it's deco or classic or modern or whatever it is, and say, wow, that's really pretty. 
And of course, there's ugliness in our world. The Bible says that our world is fallen, and hence a lot of ugliness comes in. But isn't the thing about beauty that beauty takes your breath away? And this is what I'm driving at. Let's consider this text that I just read from the book of Genesis. Let's consider this, the process, and the world, the painting. And if Genesis is true, if we see a window here into God as painter in process, we are able all the more to enjoy the beauty of all things, the beauty of this world. And these verses from Genesis, this is our Hans Namath exclusive, where here and only here, we see the painter, we see the artist at work. And I admit, this is a tired text, whether you identify closely with the Judeo-Christian tradition or not. You've heard these verses before, let there be light, and so on. It's, it's just part of the cultural currency with which we live and with which we're familiar. But my prayer and my goal for this morning is that these verses would come alive again. Speaking of the Sistine Chapel, I've been lucky to have been there twice. First time I went, wasn't that good. I wasn't impressed. You know, Michelangelo, you have nothing to say to Jim Anger about this. And I didn't understand what the fuss was about. It's a little bit like Anne from Arrested Development when it's like her, like this. This is what's going on. I, I don't fully understand it. But then shortly after I saw the Sistine Chapel for the first time, it closed to the public and underwent a multi-year repristination of the paintings when very, very carefully the paintings were scrubbed down and brushed up a little bit. And I went back again a few years later. It was spectacular. And I hope that that will be the case as we walk through these early passages of Genesis, that they would come alive again that we would feel the action and the energy and know the vibrancy and see the colors. And that's actually one of the things that we're going to work on in our small groups and our home meetings as part of this Represence Initiative, the daily office. How can we become saturated in the scriptures in such a way that passage after passage comes alive for us again? Another form of art, poetry. John Keats, the old poet, and his ode on a Grecian urn, concluded it famously by saying, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth, all you need to know. Is that true? Is it biblical? But as we journey through Genesis this fall, we pause here and ask the question, in Jesus, can we come back to beauty? So two parts for the rest of the way, looking at this passage from Genesis. We're going to look at the process of the painting and then the imitation of the artist. Process of the painting and then the imitation of the artist. As the story of God creating life, the universe, and everything, all things, builds up an increasing crescendo. And it's masterful. It's wonderful. And understand, too... Next week, we're going to take a scientific set of questions to this passage. So next week, we're, and I said last week that Genesis this fall is going to be a slow cook. We're going to take our time. We're going to get comfortable. It's going to be a lot of fun. So next week is going to be one of those weeks where we double-click. So we'll ask some science-y questions to this text. We'll talk days of creation. We'll zoom out a little bit and talk about the relationship between faith and science. We're also going to talk about, if you've seen on the secular creed or those signs, science is real. What does that mean? How does that relate to Christianity in one way or another? And that's going to be next week. But my goal for this week 
is that we not miss the music by battering it with all of these scientific questions right off the bat, kind of like this. My dad went to MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston, a really hardcore science school, and he told me and my brother and my sisters story after story about how there was a movie theater close to campus, and he and lots of college students would go and watch science fiction movies back in the day. But invariably, in the first couple of rows of these science fiction movies, there would be MIT students that the whole time would be critiquing the bad science out loud of these science fiction movies. They'd be saying out loud, oh, that could never happen. You need the uh, Avogadro's constant number and the cask of Amontillado, and oh, these things are just not adding up at all. And, and my dad said, I had to stop going to that movie theater because of those people. Nerds! That being what it may. Let's hold off on taking our slide rules to the book of Genesis chapter 1 at least for one more week. And I believe treat it on its own terms because truly it is spectacular. And we have here in Genesis chapter 1, there's both symmetry and sizzle. There's symmetry. And maybe you caught the cadences as I read through just now this passage. There are repetitions, there are refrains, things that the author comes back to over and over again. There's a lilt and there's a rhythm to this passage, the repetitions again. And God said, let there be light. By divine fiat, literally in the Latin version of these verses, fiat lux, et facta est lux. Let there be light and there was made light. But then God said, let there be an expanse. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And let there be is a repetition. And then at the end of each day, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day. So these repetitions, these symmetries for structure are baked into the story, and there's even symmetry between the first three days that we have here, the second three days that we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, and then the seventh day of rest. And the sequence and structure of all of these different creation acts being woven and layered together. So we go from light to sky, from land to plants. There's a great sequence here. And so understand that there can't really be beauty without order, without structure. Even Jackson Pollock would say that, and he would get annoyed. Maybe you've been to, I love modern art, contemporary art. It's not everybody's cup of tea. But a criticism of modern art is like, you know, my five-year-old could do that. No offense if you're five right now. Sorry, Liberty Kids. But then Pollock would say, that's just not true. Five-year-olds cannot do this, and there's a method to the seeming madness. I know what I'm doing. Not just any thrown paint will have the vibrancy and depth that I am able to imbue into these paintings. Or take avant-garde jazz. If you listen to somebody like John Coltrane, and it's... It can sound pretty random, but musicologists can come back and say, there are deep structures of harmonies going on there, or Ornette Coleman, even with the out there stuff, the best and most beautiful of it, has underlying structures. So we have the symmetry, we have the order, but then we also have the sizzle. This is beautiful. And as we track through these opening verses of Genesis, you can think of it this way, there is an explosion of color. You may, if you heard the sermon from last week, you may not have realized we were in the dark. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. 
And darkness was everywhere. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the waters. So if you're watching Genesis in a movie, the screen is totally dark, totally blank. But then day one here, light explodes onto the scene, blindingly so. And then in day two, we have the blue of the sky and the heavens. And then day three, we have the blue of the seas, the green of the land, the plants, the vegetation, the flowers. So we're beginning to glimpse in the mind eye of the reader things like the flamingo pinks and the deep crimsons and the electric purples of the beauty of all of creation. It's really awesome both in things directly from nature and for us as human beings, as we build beautiful things as well. It's really great. And it's no coincidence that God said about all this stuff, God saw that it was good. I regret to tell you that I have aged out of the Jesus Storybook Bible for my own kids, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and I think the artist's name is Jago. I meant to go back and double-check. Really, really great. It's my favorite early life development storybook Bible. And in the creation story of the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a paraphrase for kids. God creates this and this and this and tells it, you're good. You're good. You're good. And you can hear the delight of the living Lord as all of these things are created. And if God delights in the beauty of this creation, so should you. And so should I. You see, Christians at their best, the church at their best, have been people of deep beauty. You can even take somebody, for example, like Jonathan Edwards, pre-America pre America, and he's somebody who has a reputation, he was a pastor and theologian, reputation for not being super fun at parties that may actually have been true. Sinners in the hands of the angry God came from that guy. But he's also somebody that would take long walks and horseback rides always out into nature and in his diaries filled them with talk of the beauty of all of these different things. He wrote about a spider. Of all insects, no one is more wonderful than the spider especially with respect to their sagacity, their wisdom, an admirable way of thinking. And again, at its best, the church has been patron of the arts. You may not know, but in the early days of Liberty Collingswood, a couple of you remember this, we had an art show and house party at my house where we filled the house with art from various local artists, both at Liberty Collingswood and outside. And we had a band play in our backyard. It almost destroyed me, my family, and my house. But it was a ton of fun. And churches should be about things like this. And there's beauty that relates to left brain and right brain, to the structure, to the logic. There's beauty that, that relates to the more creative parts of who you are, whether you lean left brain or whether you lean right brain. Pursue beauty in either case. 20th century writer Simone Weil, and this is a reflection quote, said this about science. The true definition of science is this, the study of the beauty of the world. And as we, as God's creatures, human beings, pursue beauty in our lives, it is a small act of rebellion against ugliness that's increasing all around us, whether it's people fighting on social media or otherwise. Our world has taken an ugly turn. But let's be people instead that pursue beauty. 
Lester Bangs was one of the earliest late 20th century rock critics. So first you have rock and roll starting in the 1950s, and then maybe 60s into the 70s, rock criticism became its own thing as people discovered, hey, there's a lot going on here that, that we can dissect, that we can think about. It's not just disposable artifacts for teenagers. Lester Bangs was one of those early critics. And as the 60s went on and curdled a little bit, he was feeling weighed down by ugliness in music, but he loved Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. And he wrote about it, it was proof that there was something left to express artistically besides nihilism and destruction. And look, there's more to Christian witness than just pursuing beauty. We need to tell people about Jesus. We need to do acts of service to everybody, especially to the poor and to the outcast. We need to be people of reconciliation and so on. But in addition to those things, and we talk about those things at various points a lot, Simply being a person that not, hey, look at me, ego, just polishing my external social media life, but in a real genuine way, hey, as we think about this person over here, that person over here, that person's a person of faith, that person's a Christian, look at how they pursue beauty in their lives. If you're somebody who's skeptical about spiritual realities or not really sure where you are with all of this Jesus stuff, I would encourage you to go to a passage like this at the beginning of Genesis and see if glimpsing the process of the painter can enhance your apprehension of the beauty of all of these things in the world, to see it more and to appreciate not just the creation, but the creator, like my grandma Jessie. Jessie is a name that seems to have stuck around our family. And our first grandma, our first Jessie was Grandma Jessie. I grew up in suburban New Orleans. Once a year, if not more, we'd go to rural Western Pennsylvania and spend a lot of time with my dad's mom, Grandma Jessie. She was a great cook and one of my favorite dishes that she would make, and this is a Pennsylvania Dutch thing, chicken and noodles. Nothing super fancy about them, so it'd be baked chicken and then egg noodles. And Grandma Jessie was legendary Throughout that region, people would say, oh, Jesse cooks the best noodles in the holla. And so you get all of the stuff into a big pot, and then you really use a lot of elbow grease to roll those noodles as thin as possible, and then slice them out and dry them as delicately as possible. I love those noodles. And so Grandma Jesse made them every time I was up there, and I would eat so many noodles that my parents were genuinely alarmed. They were like, Jim, this isn't a joke anymore. You're embarrassing us at the table by the amount of noodles that you're putting down right now. You're, you're nearing noodle blackout. This is not funny anymore. Please stop. We plead with you. I kept going because the one person that didn't mind me eating all the noodles in the world was Grandma Jessie. And right before I blacked out every time, I would tell Grandma Jessie, Grandma Jessie, thanks for these noodles. They're really good. And she would say, Oh, that's wonderful, dear. She called everybody dear. I made them for you. I made them for you. And that was what put the bow on top. It sealed the deal. These noodles weren't just for anybody, but they were made with deep skill and wisdom and love by my grandmother for me and for the other people at that table. It made it so much better. And so the next time you glimpse beauty and it takes your breath away, hear the living Lord telling you, this is for you. I've made this for my glory and my delight, and I am pleased to share it with you. Or I'd go a step further 
and ask if you're not sure where you are with spiritual things, what do you do with beauty then? Beauty is just random. It's an accident. There's nothing inherently better or more valuable about beauty than ugliness. It is really all this useless beauty with no purpose, with no design, with no gifting to it at all. It's just there. But as we look at all of these things as a beautiful creation, we come to honor the creator. That's why beauty is true, because God made it. And he writes, an Episcopal bishop and scholar, said, We speak of the Creator God as good, wise, fruitful, utterly and beautifully creative and inventive, unveiling creation as the theater of his spectacular and harmonious work. So that's a little bit about the process of the painting. Let's talk now for a moment about the imitation of the artist. If we skip ahead in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to talk a lot about this in a lot of different directions, Human beings come on the scene towards the end of Genesis 1, and we are created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. And for centuries, Jewish and Christian scholars have wondered, so what's the deal with being made in the image of God? What's that about? What does it entail? It entails a ton of stuff. But one of the ways to get at that question, what does image of God mean, is that you can actually go and look at Genesis chapter 1 and say, what's God doing there, and what are we reflecting? 20th century author Dorothy Sayers said, it means that we are many creators of beauty after God. Is it his immortal soul, his rationality, his self-consciousness, his free will, or what, that gives human beings a claim to being created in God's image? Case can be argued for all of these, but... When we turn back to see what the author of Genesis says about the original God upon which the image of God was modeled, we find just one thing. God created. The characteristic common to God and man is apparently that, the desire and ability to make things. So we, in the image of God, are called to be imitators of this great artist as we adore and adorn our lives and life with beauty. Be a beauty creator and cultivator. How can we do that? A couple of examples in your living space. And probably in this room, some of us live in very, very fancy houses or apartments or places. Others of us may have more, more humble or meager dwellings. Totally fine either way. Is there a corner of where you live or where you work that you can make a little bit more beautiful? to cultivate beauty in that small way, with your vocation, with your job, whether it's sculptures or spreadsheets. How can you do that more beautifully? Or in the mundane aspects of our day-to-day -day lives, when you're making lunch. I love how my wife Emily, sometimes with her younger kids, will write little notes on the bag or in the lunch for our kids when they take it to school, just as a little bit of beauty imported in. And I'm not going to lie, I take a little bit of pride in being better than just a bargain basement lunch maker. So I was told, I got permission from my daughter Clara, I made a wrap for her for lunch. It had a little bit of ham, a little bit of mustard mayo, maybe some basil from the garden, who knows. And Clara told me afterwards, Dad, that was good. I was like, thank you, that's what I'm talking about. I made that a little bit extra. I also made a good ham sandwich this week for one of my boys. Toasted that bread a little bit, made sure that I had enough time to put that bad boy in the toaster oven, and then had some deli meats and cheeses, and I thought, hey, we also had these like nicer-ish sliced deli pickles in the fridge. I bet it would be really good to taste and bite into. 
you get the warm, crunchy, starchy toast, and then your teeth slice in to the cool, crispy pickle before you even get to the cheese and meat. This is going to be spectacular. You want to try to build a little bit of beauty into your lives. I was thinking about that as I was working on my yard a couple of weeks ago, saying, hey, I am here because I want to make my yard a little prettier and a little more beautiful. That was one of the reasons. Another reason was because a firefighter came to our door a couple weeks before that, talked to Emily and said, hey, neighbors have called and complained about your yard, that it's so messy, and we're going to have to give you a citation if you don't work on some of these things. So that was another reason why I was out in my yard. And for, for those of you that, that know me well, you'll be shocked to hear that manual labor really is not my jam. I'm not really good at it. I'm, I, I'm not native to being a man of the soil working on my hands. And with, anyway, it's, it's, it, it's all Greek to me, so to speak, with that stuff. But I was trying to talk myself into a better headspace instead of just you know, walking outside, looking around, seeing what, what neighbor was it that actually called, literally called the cops on me for, for, for my yard. Let that go. They were right. The yard needed work. And say, hey, I have an opportunity to make where I live a little more beautiful. What are your wraps? What are your sandwiches? What are your yards? That you can make a little more beautiful. Maybe you need to lean in to creating a little bit more order. Maybe that might not come naturally, but maybe a little more order will add a little more beauty. God is ordered here. You know, he separates, he names, he makes according to kinds. Maybe you need to add a little more sizzle for more things in your life where you and others will say, that's good. That's really great. And here's where we're going to start to wrap up. Even though God calls us as subjects to be adorers and adorners of beauty, understand, too, that we are the supreme objects of the primary artist. God's greatest creation is not the stars, not the seas, not the mountains, but it's you and me, because we alone are created in that image of God, Last year at Liberty, Callings, we, at Liberty Collingswood, we were talking and emphasizing community a lot. And in the sermon series, we tied it to a book by Rusty George, Discover Community, I think was the title. And here's a passage that really annoyed me. I just want to spread the misery. I'm an Eagles fan, after all. We can experience God in many ways. We experience his presence in nature, music, the arts, work, or achievement. Yet none of these pathways come close to how we experience God's presence in others. It is people who are created in God's image. The, only dis- the most distraught, broken down, hurting person is more beautiful than the most incredible ocean sunset or snow-covered mountain. Only people share the image of God. That annoyed me because in my heart of hearts, sometimes people are drags. But next time you're surrounded by a bunch of people bunch of stinking human beings all around you, whether it's at your work or your home or your school or your recreative places. Seek the grace of God and say, I am surrounded by beauty because we are all created in the image of God. As a psalmist says to God, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. 
Yet you have made us, human beings, a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned us with glory and honor. And we see Jesus. The author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, applies this passage from Psalm 8 to Jesus. We see Jesus made for a time, a little while, a little lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honor because he's risen again. This Jesus is the best of us. And I hear an echo from another place in the New Testament. Here in Genesis, beautiful things are gazed upon by our creator. God says, this is good. Similarly, Jesus of Nazareth, at the beginning of his ministry, when he's baptized in the Jordan, comes out of the water, the heavens open, a dove descends. And again, the creator and the father proclaims, you're good. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And yet, as Isaiah, the prophet, looks forward to this Jesus, Jesus crowned with glory and honor, yet not much to look at marred beyond human semblance. Jesus was made ugly to and through the cross for us. Sin is ugly. That's one of the primary forms of ugliness in our world, but we don't have to think about that through the lens of guilt and shame because Jesus took that guilt and shame upon himself on the cross and canceled the debt. It is no more and so in Jesus of Nazareth, the whole Christian gospel story, we can think there's so many ways to think about it. Here's one. God loved beauty so much that he consigned his only begotten son to the ugliest place in the history of all things, the cross, that he would conquer it, conquer that ugliness and sin and death and the devil and rise again to in beauty offer you as you receive it by faith and come to him even today, forgiveness and reconciliation. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, as we live now between Jesus' first arrival and his second one to come, we are bounded by grace on one hand and glory on the other. And as we look forward to a new heavens and new earth coming, we see with the eyes of faith that beauty wins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.